Good morning, church. I love worshiping with all of you. And thank you to the music team for always doing an amazing job. And thank you for those songs. They fit very well with uh, the message, really, of Colossians. If you have your Bibles, you could open up to the book of Colossians. We're starting a new series called More Than Enough. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of getting something new and you were really excited about it. Uh, maybe it was like a new car that you've been saving up your money for and you finally get it and you're very excited. All your hopes and dreams have finally come true. You have this new car and then someone comes up to you and says, oh, did you hear about that recall that they're doing on this part of the car? Or maybe you buy a new phone. Again, you've, had, you've been you know, toting around this old phone for a really long time and you finally have a new phone and someone tells you, oh, the new version's coming out in like two more months. Or maybe you have a smart device that's promised that's going to make your life so much easier, the problem is you have no idea how to use it. And so what's supposed to be this big help to you, what's supposed to be the source of great joy and excitement, you start to maybe doubt or wonder. The rust, there starts to be some rust or some glory starts to fade. I think sometimes, you know, our experience with Christ can be like that a little bit. Uh, when we get saved, we sung those songs today about the moment I got saved. When you got saved, Christ was everything, right? He could do anything, any problem in your life. You had 100% confidence that he could fix it. But what happens? Well, sometimes over the course of your life, maybe doubt starts to creep in on the inside, and you wonder, can Christ really forgive me of this? Or can he really deliver me from this sin? Or maybe voices start coming from the outside. Well, yeah, Christ is great. You know, we're glad you found Christ. But if you really want to grow, if you really want to experience God in a meaningful way, you need these other things. You need to follow these rules, or you need to follow these rituals. Christ is great, but you need other things in order to live a life of joy and fruitfulness to God. Well, that's really what this letter of Colossians is addressing, that idea. And Paul's argument is, you have everything you need in Christ. He is more than enough. You know, sometimes we use the words enough or sufficient, and it almost communicates this idea that I have this cup, and Christ is like, just enough to fill that cup. He's sufficient, you know, he does the job, but that's not what we're talking about when we talk about the sufficiency of Christ. He has more than enough for anything that you could possibly need. It's like when you put your cup under the faucet and you turn it on full blast and the water just goes in and it starts like bursting out of the cup. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the sufficiency of Christ, the fullness of God available to you in him and in him alone. No need to supplement with anything else. Everything you need, you have, and then some in Christ. That's the message of the book of Colossians. And so what my goal is today is to really give you an overview of the whole book of Colossians. Uh, I'm starting a Sunday school series with some of the other elders, and we're going to be teaching how do you study and apply the Bible. And one of the big steps that I appreciate when I'm, re, you know, kind of studying a particular passage is I like to know the lay of the land. What's really the whole point of this book? So I thought I would try to be helpful and try to kind of lay out what is Colossians all about? What's this whole book about? Could we trace what this, the argument of this whole book is? 
And hopefully that will serve us well throughout the rest of this series when we're sort of picking individual passages within the book. Now, I also did this a little bit selfishly because I only preach every three weeks, so I don't get to preach every single passage in Colossians. So I figured I would do this way so that I could kind of pick and choose my favorite passages. I can preach anything that I want uh, for this particular sermon. But before we get into it, let me pray, and then we'll dive into what is the message of the book of Colossians. Father, we are so thankful for your grace. We're so thankful for your Son. It's wonderful to gather around together and sing praises to him. How he saved us. We were running away, and he opened our eyes to the glory of Christ. And you've just done a wonderful work in our hearts. We're so thankful for David and his testimony of the work that you've done in his life. Not at all through his own merits, but only through the merits of your son that he gets saved, that all of us get saved. But not only does Christ save us from hell and from the penalty of sin, he also is everything that we need for all of life. Any problem that we could possibly face he is the answer. And we're so thankful for Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd open our eyes to hear that, to see that, and then to hear that from your word. Lord, this is a wonderful book. And the message is this, that you have everything that you need in Christ. Lord, pray that you would speak to us through your word. Encourage us. Lord, help us to leave behind the distractions. If we've gotten our focus off of Christ, I pray that through this word and through this whole series, that you would restore our confidence in the sufficiency of your Son to help us with every area of life. So do your work through your word, in Christ's name, amen. Well, Colossians is primarily a letter of encouragement. Paul's heard of this church. He's never met them, but he's heard a wonderful report about this church, and he just wants to encourage them. Like, everything that's going on is so encouraging. Just keep going. Keep doing exactly what you're doing, and everything will continue as just as it has been from the beginning. Now, there's a little bit of an immediate situation that requires Paul to write this, and it's this, that there are people that are coming in, and they're telling the church that, yeah, Jesus is good, but if you really want to know God, you need to do some other things. You need to follow these rules. You need to do these rituals. You need to follow this philosophy. And so Jesus plus all of these other things is what's going to help you to grow. And so Paul writes this letter to let them know, to reassure them that, no, you don't need anything else. Everything you need, you have in Christ. And so there's really kind of three big parts to this letter. Chapter one, he's giving them encouragement. Chapter two, he's going to warn them to not get their focus off Christ. And then in chapter three, he's going to exhort them that if they keep Christ central, it'll change every area of their life. So first, Colossians 1, marvel at the person and work of Christ. Look at what God does through the gospel of Christ in verse three. Paul writes, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So it's just encouraging. I mean, it, 
Everything I hear about you is wonderful. I thank God for you every single time that I pray for you. Why? Verse 6, because you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. And the moment that you did that, the moment you understood the gospel, what happened? You started bearing fruit and you started increasing, right? It produced faith. It produced love for the saints. It produced hope in the future. That's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel always does. And so Paul's just encouraging them, keep it up, keep doing what you're doing. I've been so encouraged to hear that, and just amazing things are happening. I mean, that's really how I feel about this church. I'm thankful for the faith that you have in Christ, the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Keep doing what you're doing. That's essentially his prayer. Look at verse 9. He says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Essentially, Paul's praying, just keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't stop taking the medicine. I don't know if you've ever been on antibiotics or things like that, right? Usually you have to be on them for seven to ten days, but what did the doctor tell you? The doctor says you're probably going to feel better in like three or four days, but whatever you do, don't stop taking the medicine, (laughs) Because if you do, you'll slip back into whatever it was before. That's kind of what Paul's saying. You came to Christ. Everything radically changed. Now don't move on to something else. Stay focused on Christ. He says it this way, be filled with the knowledge of his will. When he says be filled, he doesn't mean that there's knowledge you don't have and that you need something else. What he's saying is you have the knowledge you need. You just need that knowledge to fill up every part of you. You know, think of it like chocolate milk, right? I love chocolate milk. You have a glass of milk, and what do you do? It's like you put the Hershey's syrup inside of it. Does that chocolate fill the milk? Well, not right away, right? Now, do you need more chocolate to add it to fill it up? No, you don't. What do you need? You need to stir right? Stir it up. That's what he's talking about. You know the knowledge of his will. You already know that. You know the gospel. That's what he's talking about. You know the gospel. You know the truth. What you need is not more knowledge. What you need is that knowledge to start permeating every part of your life, right? Stir it up. Stir up that gospel. Stay focused on the gospel, and it will start to fill every area of your life. He says that you need to be filled with the knowledge of his will. He's not talking about his will for your life. He's talking about what is his will? What is he doing in the world? What's God doing in the world? He's reconciling the world through his son. Again, it's the gospel. Let the knowledge of the gospel permeate every ounce of your life. In other words, keep doing what you're doing. You got saved by focusing on Christ. Keep focusing on Christ and what's going to happen in verse 10. You'll begin to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. This is what's going to happen if you stay focused on Christ. You're going to grow, you're going to bear fruit, you're going to find strength, and you're going to be thankful. Like, is that what you want for your life? Then stay focused on Christ, because that's exactly what Christ produces in your life. Fruit, growth, strength, 
thankfulness, joy. So all Paul wants to do in this letter is remind you, what do you have in Christ? And he does that in this amazing paragraph, verses 15 to 20. He highlights who your king is. Let's start in verse 13. This is talking about God the Father now. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And what Paul's basically doing is reminding you through this whole letter, who is your king? He says, this is your king. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. This is your king. This is the one whose kingdom you are in right now as a result of what God's done through his son. I mean, think about these terms. He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, he is completely God. Right? Philip asked Jesus, show us the Father. What does Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am God. I am the image of the invisible God. John 1, right? No one has ever seen the Father, but Jesus Christ has revealed him. He's explained him. Jesus is God. This is the kingdom that you're in. Your king is God. Not only that, he says he's firstborn of all creation. Now, this can be a confusing term. It might appear as though it's saying that Jesus was the first thing created, but that's not what Paul's saying. Jesus says Jesus is first place over all creation. He is not part of the creation, right? It says he created all things, right? So he is not part of what he created. He existed before creation. The term firstborn is really a term of rank. He's number one. Number one over everything. Psalm 89, verse 27. I'm sure Tim will get into this. He gets this wonderful passage when we get there. But Psalm 89, 27, God says to David, I will make you my firstborn. Was David firstborn in his family? No. He was lastborn, actually. He was the youngest son. So what's God saying? God's saying, I'm going to give you first place. I'm going to put you number one. And that's exactly what Paul is saying about Jesus. He is firstborn. He is number one. Number one in rank over all creation. Why does he get first place? Because he created it all. Right? He created the heavens and the earth. Everything you see, everything you don't see, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, he created the angels, he created the earth, he created the heavens, he created everything. Anything that has been created, he created it. That's what he's saying. That's your king. He existed before creation, it says, to reinforce that. He's not part of the creation. All things were made through him. Jesus did the creating. You know, when you read Genesis 1-1, when it says God created the earth, Jesus was the one who actually did the creation of the earth 
and the heavens and everything else. You exist because Jesus created you. And it says you exist for him. It also says that he holds all creation together. Right? I mean, some people have this idea, right? God is the kind of cosmic watchmaker, right? Machine maker. That he designed everything and he kind of turned the on switch on and then he can leave and go do what he wants, right? That's not what it says. Jesus created everything and he's still intimately connected to everything, holding everything together. The reason we're sitting in this room, the reason this building exists, the reason you exist is because Jesus is holding you together. This is your king. First over all creation. But he's first also over new creation. Look at verse 18. He is head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, both in creation and new creation, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I mean, it's amazing to think that the God described in verses 15 to 17 would then bleed in verse 20. He made peace through the blood of his cross. He became a man and he died and he was raised from the dead to be, the fir- to be first place among all those who would be raised from the dead. Lord of creation, Lord of new creation, this is your king. This is the kingdom that you're in. You've been transferred into it, the kingdom of God's beloved son. He's preeminent in everything. And we just get a glimpse even in these verses. It's hard to just grasp the splendor, the majesty, the glory that is in these verses. And what makes it even more glorious is if you compare it to what's in verse 21. And you. So we get this picture of the grand Christ, Lord of creation, Lord of new creation. And you, verse 21, who once were alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You go from the glory of the Son to those he redeems. Those he redeems are alienated from him. They're estranged. They have no love for him. They don't want anything to do with him. They're hostile in mind. They view him as their enemy. We hate that God the one who created us, the one who created us for him, the one who's holding us together even now. We had hostility toward him. And we lived in open rebellion, doing evil deeds. I'm going to live my life. I don't care what you say. That was us. So you have this glorious king, and then you have a rebellious people in verse 21. And what did this glorious king do for people that didn't love him? that hated him and that lived in open rebellion against him, what did he do for them in verse 22? He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. He reconciled you. 
You were estranged. You were alienated. You were hostile. You were his enemy. And what did he do? He brought you to himself. And how did he do it? Through the body of his flesh, by his death. He died for you. He became a man and he died for you. His enemy. Why did he do it? Verse 22. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I mean, you were his enemy. You wanted to be his enemy. You weren't seeking him. He had to come and get you. And the way he was going to reconcile you to himself, there was only one way. I have to die in their place. I have to take the penalty that they deserve so that they can be holy and blameless, so that we can be reconciled together, so that we can no longer be strangers and alienated, that we can be back together in one family. He did that for you. I mean, the person and work of Christ, it's amazing who he is. Just that by itself should make us worship. And then to see a person like that lay down his life for a people like us. And it gets even better. Look at verse 27. He says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In other words, he didn't just save you and then go back to heaven and just leave you alone. No, he's in you. He's among you. In other words, you have access to this very king. Right now, you have access to him. You can get right to him. You don't have to do anything else. You can just go right to him, and you have access to the image of the invisible God. You know, Charity Gale will be here tonight, especially now that they got her here from her bus that broke down. But they're selling VIP tickets tonight to the Charity Gale. And VIP means you don't just get to, you know, sit in the audience and enjoy her music. Now, that's great. We should like to do that. But a VIP ticket gives you access to Charity Gale, right? You get to go downstairs in a special room, and you get to meet her and the rest of the band, and you get to say hello. You get to ask her questions. You could shake her hand, take your picture with her, right? You get access to her. That's different. It's one thing to admire her from afar. It's another thing to have access to her. You have access to Jesus Christ right now. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, you have access to him right now. Constant VIP access, not to a singer, but to a savior in Jesus Christ. We need to know that. We don't need to go to anything else when we have access to him. And what does he want to do for us? Look at verse 28. Paul says, We proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is what Jesus wants to do for you right now. He wants to mature you. He wants to complete you. He wants to make you whole right? Any sin that you're struggling is he, he wants to free you from it. If you're brokenhearted, he wants to bind you up. He wants to heal parts of you that you think are just irreparably broken. He wants to make you complete in him. You name an issue, and he can fix it. If you're depressed, he can give you joy. If you're anxious, 
he can give you peace. If you're addicted, he can free you from it. If you have a broken family, he can fix it. He wants to do those things. And you have access to his fullness. Right? How could he not want to do those things? How could he not do those things when he has all the power necessary to fix everything and he has the heart for you? He loves you. He cares for you. So his power matched with his heart, he wants to pour out his power, his fullness into your life so that you become like him. Wow. I mean, these are some of the the phrases that Paul uses about Christ throughout this letter. He says that you're rooted in Christ, that you're alive in Christ, that you're built up in Christ, that you're hidden in Christ, that you're complete in Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The fullness of God dwells in him. Anything you need, it's in him. Everything that you need, it's in him. Marvel at the grace of God in Christ. I mean, that he would do those things for you. I mean, remember who he is, the image of the invisible God, and to think that he would take on flesh and blood to die for me. And really, that's the heart of all Paul wants to say in this letter. That's the heart of all Paul's ministry. Never forget who Jesus is. Remember him. Don't get off track. And all I'm going to do, my whole ministry, is I'm going to keep telling you about Jesus because that's the key to everything in your life changing. And that's what leads to chapter 2. Don't let anything draw you away from Christ in chapter 2. The only thing that could possibly derail your fruitfulness, your joy, your thankfulness, your growth, is if you take your eyes off Christ. Look at verses 1 to 4, chapter 2. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for all those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Right? You want a treasure of wisdom and knowledge? Where are you going to find it? In Christ. Does he have a couple of those treasures that you might need? No, he's got all of the treasures. And then he says in verse 4, why am I telling you this? I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Right? What's going to happen? People are going to come in and they're going to say like, oh, you think Jesus is everything. Oh, that's really cute. Like, good for you. Um, But if you really want to grow, if you really want to see things change in your life, you really should follow this set of rules. Or you should really do this, this ritual. Jesus is great. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, he paid for your sins. That's awesome. But if you really want to grow, if you really want to experience healing in deep places, you're going to have to supplement Jesus with other things. And so what's Paul saying? Don't let anyone do that to you. Don't let anyone tell you that Christ is not enough. Don't let anyone tell you you need something else. Look at verse 8. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 
What's going to happen throughout the course of your life? I'm sure it's already happened. That people come to you and they say, Jesus can do a lot for you, but Jesus can't do everything. I mean, if you have deep emotional hurts, like Jesus can't fix those. You need to go to a professional to fix those. And what do they do? They suggest that Jesus is not enough. He's good for what he's good for. But if you really want to grow, if you really want to experience God in a deep and meaningful way, you need something else. And I think we all have that tendency, right, to think, well, it can't be this simple, right? You know, Rhonda and I, sometimes we go into, you know, we follow some of the diet crazes and the fads that associate with, like, dieting and getting healthy. And every, you know, few months, there's, like, a new one that comes along. And sometimes we fall prey to these things. Uh, right now, we're trying intermittent fasting. But if we would just ask a doctor, like, hey, how do you kind of get, sh- get in shape, get healthy? They would tell us all the same thing, right? Just kind of watch what you eat and exercise. Rhonda and I think, no, that can't be it. There's got to be a better way. There has to be a shortcut. There has to be some other way that I can experience what I want apart from, you know, diet and exercise. And that's kind of what's happening here, right? That Paul's saying, everything you need is in Christ. But we start to think, well, it can't be that easy. No, there's got to be a trick. There's got to be like a set of rules or like principles I can live by, and that's really what's going to help me to grow. Or, well, if I have a certain experience, that's really going to be the key to me growing as a believer. And Paul's saying, no, focus on Christ. Because look what's available to you in Christ, verse 9 of chapter 2. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All of God in a man. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him. So the fullness of God dwells in him, and he provides that fullness to you. Anything you need, you have access to in Jesus Christ. He will completely heal you from anything that you could possibly be struggling with right now. He and he alone. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, who he created, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What's Paul saying? Your biggest problem on the inside is sin. And what did Christ do? He conquered it. He completely cleansed you from sin. The sin that was made you a slave, that was strangling the life out of you, is completely dealt with at the cross. Then he says in verse 15, anything that could possibly harm you on the outside, right? any ruler or authority or anything else external to you that could harm you, he's triumphed over them. There's nothing that could come at you or come from inside you that could possibly keep you from the love of Christ, right? He triumphed over everything. So don't go to anything else. Verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. 
What's he saying? People are going to come, and they're going to say, no, the key to experiencing God is through these rituals. Do these things, and you can experience God. Right? I mean, people even are like that today. There's people that think we need to follow the Old Testament laws and all of these things. That's what it really means to be a Christian. But we can kind of come up with Christian versions of this, right? You're not a real Christian. You're not a real believer unless you attend the prayer meeting or you feed the homeless or you go to three small groups or whatever it is, right? We come up with these things. The key to your success, the key to your growth is going to be following these rituals. And he says, no. The key to your growth will always and only be Jesus Christ. I had the privilege of sitting with David, who was baptized just earlier this service, last week. And he grew up Catholic. I also grew up Catholic. And he was saying how the weight of his sin was just heavy on his conscience. And so he got to the point where eventually he knew he couldn't handle the weight of his sin. So what did he do? What did any good Catholic do? Where do you go? You go to the priest, right? And what did the priest say? Do this many Hail Marys, do this many whatever, and you can be forgiven of your sin, you can experience God. That's not the gospel, right? There's no amount of Hail Marys. David said he went back to his seat with tears in his eyes because he knew those things wouldn't do anything. And his only hope of forgiveness was what Christ did on the cross in his place. That's the gospel. And you just keep going back to that over and over and over again throughout the course of your life, and that's what's going to cause growth. That's what's going to lead you into a deeper relationship with God, not a ritual, but going back to Jesus himself. Look at verse 17. He says, you know, don't, don't let anyone disqualify you, pass judgment on you. Verse 17, all these things, these rituals, they're a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So don't get caught up in a shadow when you have the person here who's casting the shadow. Focus on Jesus, right? I, it always cracks me up, and sometimes I'll do this even myself, but it's like the 4th of July, and everybody's out on the, you know, hanging out at the park or wherever it is to watch fireworks. And the fireworks show starts, and what happens? Everyone brings up their phone. You know, and they start recording the fireworks on their phone. And where is their focus? Their focus is on the phone, right? They're watching this amazing fireworks display on this little phone. It's like the fireworks are right in front of you. Like, why are you looking at the phone? Look at Jesus. Don't look at all these rituals and these things that were pointing to Jesus. Look at Jesus. He's right here. He's everything that you need. But Paul goes on. That's not the only thing that people are going to try to tell you. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Right? People are going to tell you that you need to have certain religious experiences. And those religious experiences are the real value. Right? That's really connecting with God. Right? If you can speak in tongues, or if you have someone prophesy over you, or if you have visions, that's really what it means to connect with God. And what's Paul saying? No, it's not. You have Jesus. 
People also get obsessed with intermediaries, right? People that come between God and man. The reason is because they think, well, God's too busy. God's distant. I can't get to God, so I need someone who can sort of fill the gap for me, right? What does he say? The worship of angels. That's the idea. And again, we still believe these things today sometimes. We think angels or Mary or the saints or a priest. I value them. They're going to get me access to God. Paul's saying, no, you don't need them. You get to go right to him, right to God. You know, the queen died this week. By all accounts, she was actually a believer, and she's now with Christ in heaven. But there was a little clip going around about her, and it was told by one of her security guards, And he was saying that one day he and the queen were out on this walk in the countryside, as they like to do. And so they were approached by a couple people that were hiking. And it was these two Americans kind of came up to them, and they started talking to them. And it became clear that the Americans had no idea who they were talking to. Uh, Typical Americans, we don't know anything outside of what's in uh, the United States. Uh, But they're talking to this security guard and the queen. And they're saying, oh, you know, how long have you lived here? And, you know, the queen says, like, oh, about 80 years or so. And it's like, wow, if you've been here that long, have you ever met the queen? <laughs> and she says, well, I've never met her, but my sec- this guy right here, referring to her security guard, he's met her on several occasions. <laughs> and they're like, wow, really? And so they start talking to him, and they're like, well, so what's she like? And, and he's like, well, she can be a bit cantankerous at times, but, you know, she's got a great sense of humor. And before you know it, these hikers, they put their arm around the security guard, they give their camera to the queen, and they ask if she can take a picture of them together so that they can show all their friends that they met a security guard who has met the queen. But it's like, that's what we do, Right? When we get focused on some intermediary, it's like handing the camera to Jesus. Here, Jesus, take a picture of me and the priest. Or take a picture of me and the pastor. Right? Take a picture of me with Mary. It's like you have access to Jesus. You don't need them. You don't need intermediaries to come and help you experience God. You have Jesus. He is everything that you need. Because once you start attaching your confidence, your hope, your experience to something other than Jesus, what happens in verse 19? You're not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Where does nourishment and growth come from? It comes from Jesus As soon as you put your hope, your confidence in a person or a ritual or a rule, what are you doing? You're severing yourself from Jesus. And as much as those things might promise to help you, they're actually going to suck the life out of you because they're disconnecting you from the only one who can actually work in your life. You have Christ. Verse 20, he continues with the same theme. If with Christ you died... To the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. Same idea, right? Don't put your hope in a rule. Put your hope in Christ, right? We'll come up with rules, you know, like, oh, I'll really experience God if I read my Bible every day, or if I pray three times a day, or if I fast, 
or if I tithe. There's nothing wrong with those things, and we should be doing those things, but we never put our confidence in those things, right? Our access to God is not dependent on what we do. Our access to God is dependent on Jesus Christ. Verse 23, these things, these rules, these regulations, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom, right? They appear to be wise. They appear to be able to deliver on what they promise in promotion of self-made religion, asceticism, severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Right? You go to these things. I'm going to be in an accountability group. I'm going to, you know, get this program on my phone or my computer, and my hope is attached to those things. Those things have no value when it comes to stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No value. What's going to help you? Jesus. Jesus can actually stop you from indulging the flesh. He's going to do that. Not a rule, not a regulation, as wise as it may be. Those things are not the source of your hope and confidence. Jesus is the source of your hope and confidence. You know, you th- I mean, you think these things are going to help you, and they end up just draining the life out of you. The common thread through all of these things is that they get your focus off of Christ. They promise that the key to you experiencing God is in something other than Jesus. That there's a hidden thing, there's a secret thing, and if you could find out what that hidden secret thing is, then your life with Christ will really go to the next level. Well, they're right in this sense. There is something secret and hidden that is going to be key to your experience of God, but it's been revealed. Look at chapter 1, verse 26 again. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The thing that was hidden, the thing that was the mysterious key to unlocking a relationship with God was Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ has been revealed. No more mystery. Nothing else is hidden anymore. If you want to get to God, you go through Jesus Christ. And so don't let anything or anyone draw you away from Christ. So instead of being drawn away from Christ, what should we do instead? That's chapters 3 and 4. We should set our minds on things above. Chapter 3, keep seeking Christ in everything. Look at verses 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are of earth. Leave the distractions behind. Leave all the empty promises behind. Get your eyes back on Christ. Because what's happened? What's true of you in Christ? Look at verse 3. You have died Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Never forget what Jesus has done. 
The old you is dead. The old you that was a slave to the flesh, that was a slave to earthly things, that couldn't please God, that you is dead, not is going to die, but is dead right now. Your life is hidden with Christ, not it will be in the future, it is right now. You have access to him right now. Christ is your life. Not he will be. He is your life right now. And when he appears, you will appear with him in glory. Let those truths sink into your heart and fill every area of your life. That's what he goes on to say. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie in verse 9. I mean, what's he saying? Put those things off. And the amazing truth is you can. Because verse 3 you, that person that used to walk in all of those things is dead. So you can put them off. You can have victory over sexual immorality. You can have victory over anger. You can have victory over lying. These things are possible now because your life is in Christ. You can put them off. And so put those things off. Look at verse 10. And you can put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I mean, what a cool thought, right? Chapter 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In chapter 3, you put on Christ and are fashioned after his image. Right? You put him on and you become more like him who is the image of the invisible God. What does it look like? Verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put these things on. And the amazing truth is you can put these things on because your life is hidden with Christ. He is your life. You have access to him and he can put these things on you. You can be kind and compassionate like Christ. You can bear with one another and forgive. You can love people who are difficult to love. Why? Because I want to pattern my life after him. How did he treat people that were alienated, hostile, and his enemies. He gave himself up for them. You can do the same thing. You can sacrificially love people that don't love you back. Why? Because you want your life to reflect his image. And it can, because you have access to him. Paul ends this letter by getting super practical. He talks about that this truth that your new life is in Christ should start to affect every area of your life. Look at verse 18. It's going to affect your home. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 
Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Father, don't provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Every area of your life, if you stay focused on Christ, will dramatically change to where it's almost unrecognizable to the way it was before. Right? Think about an earthly marriage apart from Christ. How would you describe a husband in that relationship oftentimes? Uncaring, harsh, no leadership, caring most about themselves, not about their wife. How would you describe a wife sometimes apart from Christ? Disrespectful of their husband, do their own thing. But what does Christ do? He transforms marriages. He transforms husbands to where they provide loving leadership in their home. They desire to see their wives nourished and built up in every way. He changes wives so that they joyfully and voluntarily respect and follow their husband's gracious leadership. Why does he do it? Because husbands and wives realize that my marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, right? Paul says that in Ephesians 5, that my greatest desire now is to make every area of my life a picture of the gospel. So husbands, I want to love my wife the way that Christ loves the church and sacrificed himself for her. It changes your parenting, right? Earthly parenting, Parents, many times, find themselves annoyed, frustrated, distant from their children. Children often find themselves angry and bitter toward their parents. But when Christ gets a hold of parents, they want to invest in the lives of their children. They want to raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. They want to encourage them to know and grow in Christ. But Christ can also get a hold of children, Children, then, if, they're, if, they, if Christ gets a hold of them, they love their parents. They listen to their parents. They want to obey their parents in all things. Rather than sibling rivalry, they'll actually care about their siblings. These things are not pie in the sky. These are things that Jesus can do in your marriage. These are things that Jesus can do in your home, in your parenting. He can change you. It doesn't have to be the way that it always was. You have access to the fullness of God to you so that he can dramatically change these kinds of areas in your life. That's what he wants to do. You know, the gospel so radically transforms every area of your life that the people around you start to notice, right? Christians should be terrible at camouflage, right? You know, like we should not be able to just sort of blend in with the rest of society, I mean, we should be like, you know, people wearing like these bright orange jumpsuits walking around in the forest. Like there's no missing you, right? Christ has so transformed your life that there's no way that I'm just going to think that you're just like everybody else. You're different, not because you're so great, but because Christ is so great and he's radically transformed you. It's like you don't treat your wife the way that all these other husbands treat their wives. Or you don't treat your kids the way that I see all these other parents treat their kids. You don't work on the job the same way that all the other guys work on the job. 
If Christ gets a hold of it, if you stay focused on Christ, your life will change. And it'll change dramatically. And it'll also give you opportunities to share his love with others. And so as we work through this book of Colossians together over these next several weeks, we pray that it would stir in you just a greater confidence that you have everything you need in Christ. My pastor, Steve Fernandez, used to tell me that when you get saved, like I open this, like Christ is everything. He can do anything, right? He forgave your sins. Like there's nothing he can't do. But over the course of your life, many times you unlearn that about Jesus. That someone comes along and tells you, well, the Christ isn't everything. I mean, he can't do that. He can't heal this area. He can't restore that kind of a marriage. But I pray that this series would help us to relearn that Christ is everything. He's more than enough. More than enough, not just to save you, but to actually change you, to sanctify you, to make your life look radically different than it used to before. He can do it. The fullness of deity dwells in him, and that fullness is available to you. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this book, this reminder of the riches we have in Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The fullness of deity dwells in him, and he fills us. We have access to your fullness. Lord, forgive us. I mean, I just think about what it must look like when we go running to other things, putting our confidence in a rule, putting our confidence in a ritual, putting our confidence in a person, when we have access to your fullness through your Son. Lord, help us to see that he is everything, that he's more than enough for every need that we have, any sin that we're dealing with, he can fix it. Any problem that we're facing, he can fix it. He can do anything. That's what we believe the day we got saved. That's what we believe the day we got baptized. Lord, if we've unlearned it, pray that we'd relearn it, that Jesus is everything that we need and more. Radically change us. I believe you can radically change us through this series in the book of Colossians. Not because any of the preachers are so great, but because your word is amazing. Christ is amazing, and you've revealed him to us in your word. Do work through your word, we pray. Bless our fellowship now, in Christ's name, amen.